This is Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. We have two stories today from Civics 101 New Hampshire. Running for office in New Hampshire is more than just kissing babies, shaking hands. There's paperwork to file, qualifications to meet. Today, we look at what it takes to run for office in New Hampshire. I've been told by more than one expert that if a New Hampshire candidate wants to get elected, they have to go to the town dump. Uh, But it was a place where you could definitely meet everyone because, especially if you didn't have garbage collection, which most small communities don't have garbage collection, you knew that on Saturdays or Fridays or whatever, everybody had to get rid of their stuff and and it was universal. I mean, some really hoity-toity people probably had someone pick up their garbage, but even people were embarrassed to do that in small towns. I mean, you go to the dump. My name is Deborah Arnie Arneson. She goes by Arnie. And I describe myself as a politician in recovery. So my staff would say, Arnie, you're going to the dump to talk. You're not going to the dump to scrounge. You're going to the dump to talk. And I said, well, I can talk and scrounge at the same time. This is Civics 101 New Hampshire edition. I'm Jackie Helbert. Oh, I'm scoring that table. <laughs> oh, look at that box. Running for office in New Hampshire is more than kissing babies and visiting the town dump. There are qualifications to meet, paperwork to be filed, yard signs to be placed lawfully. Today, we're diving into the proverbial dumpster of running for office in New Hampshire. Any citizen in New Hampshire who puts their mind to it and really cares and wants to give it a shot has a fair chance. And there's not a lot of places where you can say that that's true. In fact, I, you know, I would say maybe New Hampshire is even kind of unique in that respect. Jackie Benson from my favorite nonpartisan New Hampshire organization, Citizens Count. Especially at the state house level, it's an open door, man. Anyone can run. New Hampshire has so many positions to fill with each election. Governor, executive counselors, senators, treasurer, sheriff, county commissioner, register of deeds. Um, Would it be rude to say like they really just need warm bodies in the seat? Well, I mean, that's kind of a dark way of putting it, but it's a dark way of putting it. I think it's more that just because our our legislature is a citizen legislature and because we have so many reps for the number of people that live in this state, it, it really is something that is achievable for anyone, whether you, you know, what, however educated you are, however wealthy you are, whatever your background, you have a shot. You totally have a shot. She's a visiting scholar at Harvard School of Public Health, program director of a human services agency, Arnie Arneson, Representative Arneson, please come up. Arnie is familiar with running for office. She won a seat as state representative from Orford in 1984. She won the same seat again and again and again. Arnie is a small person, but looking at campaign photos, you can't really tell. So many shoulder pads in the 80s. Just days before the swearing-in ceremony, she gave birth to a baby girl. Arnie took her fresh little daughter to the swearing-in ceremony and then to work almost every day for the first year. The Concord Monitor had this series about what to see when you're in 
conquered. And one of the things they included was the legislator with the baby. She began considering a run for a different, higher office. People are knocking on my door saying to do it, and I'm thinking they're totally crazy. One fateful day after teaching a class, the professor says to me, Arnie, I just want to let you know that if you ever decide to run for office, I'd love to help. And I looked at her and I said, wow, thank you. And then I said, people are asking me to do that. It's ironic that you should even put that out there. If I do, I will let you know. And she says to me, well, if you do, Arnie, I will deliver the nuns for you. I said, you'll do what? How could you say that? And she said, well, there's something you need to know, Arnie. I'm a nun. It's a sign. It's a sign. Arnie wasn't a total noob, but running for state rep in Tani Orford is a different animal than running for governor of the whole state. So I decided, what the heck, if they all lack courage, all I could do was lose. But if I didn't try, who would know? Arnie would throw her hat in the ring to be elected the 77th governor of New Hampshire. Oh, New Hampshire, you're my home, where a lonely seagull flies. So to be a state representative, you just have to be 18. And we do have some state representatives that young. Anna Brown. To be a state senator, you have to be at least 30. And that's the same for executive counselor and governor as well. If you need to live in your state district, if you want to be the governor, you need to live in New Hampshire. That's pretty obvious. You have to go down to your town clerk if you're running for state rep, or then if you're running for state senator or a higher office, you go to secretary of state and you're gonna fill out your paperwork. The first thing that you need to decide if you're running for office is if you want to run as a Republican, as a Democrat, or as an independent or other third party. So in New Hampshire, you can only run as a Republican or a Democrat if you are a registered member of that party. If you want to run it as an independent or as a libertarian or another third party, then you need to file a declaration of intent which is basically saying, I want to run, and I'm going to try to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. You'll file a financial disclosure where you write down your financial interests. Are you in a particular industry? Do you run a business? Maybe is your spouse involved with something that could potentially influence your vote? It's $2 to run as a state rep, a bargain, and it goes up to a reasonably priced $100 for a governor. And you're good to go. It's time for the big announcement. And we decided to do our announcement at the old, empty Sears Roebuck building on Main Street in Concord, New Hampshire. It had been empty for a long time, but it kind of told the story of the economy. As Harvey Milk said, politics is theater. The night before the announcement, which was on a Sunday, it snowed and snowed, and I'm like, oh God, you know, we're screwed. No one's gonna show up. When Arnie took the stage, she saw the place was packed, standing room only. It was just a magical moment. It was really unbelievable. I feel like the Pope. Awesome, awesome. All right, now you have to be very quiet. 
in these scary economic times. Networking with your local party is definitely going to help you and give you a leg up. It's going to help them organize events. You can share campaigning locations, you know, go out together and buy buy palm cards. I've seen candidates split palm cards where you'll have two candidates on the palm card who talk about their positions. Gather up volunteers, canvassers, envelope stuffers, finance people, or nuns. New Hampshire's candidates for governor are also on the campaign trail, talking to voters all over the state. How do you describe her? The rambunctiously opinionated honey I guess I have a question for you. Why the hell are you here? <laughs> I mean, I'm looking outside. In some of the locations in New Hampshire, though, there aren't as robust party structures. So you are going to be a little bit more out on your own and even can have some difficulty getting out to voters in particularly rural areas. So then you're going to want to think, OK, also, what is my online presence? You know, how can I get out to these people? Citizens Count has an app that lets you learn about candidates and their backgrounds. If candidates don't fill out their information, Anna has to scrounge on the Internet for it. How's there was that one guy who we have a picture of this one representative, and there was this big debate about whether or not he was wearing a shirt in his picture. And I'm yes. fully convinced that he is, yes. and it's just really flesh colored. It looks, fl- I think <laughs> you're right. I mean, I think I could see, you could see a collar. Yeah, there was like a that, collar. that like thin circular outline. Yep. But I mean, yep. there was there was some debate, but there were some people who were like, no, you put a shirtless legislator on there. And I'm like, I really didn't. <laughs> but what do we do if that's their official campaign photo? I mean, the public image a candidate puts out to the Granite State is important. So the thing is, I have to find pictures of every single candidate, right? So yes. as I'm doing this very like drudgery task, I will occasionally send to Jackie and be like, oh more delightful God, ones. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Like, like people that look like when you're like, it looks like they sneezed on their webcam and then we're just like, this is it. This is my official campaign photo. But then I... Some take it more seriously than others. Should we show her? Yes. I'll bring it up. There, that one. Yeah. All right. So like... So that's a new puppy next in a field. To a pickup truck. He's like flexing his huge bicep. Yard signs are probably the most ubiquitous part of elections. You see them everywhere, and they are expensive. The cheapest ones are about $2. Bigger signs can cost you $20 a pop. Even though it seems campaign signs blanket every square inch of space during the election season, there are limits to where they can be placed. Private lands, you gotta get permission. Utility poles, nope. Interstate ramps, nah. They can go beside state roads only if they don't block the view of traffic. It's tricky to pick a good slogan for yard signs. You want something catchy. While preggers and running for state rep. I remember having a campaign sign that I made. It was just a line. And it was a line of a pregnant woman. So you see the face and then you see the stomach, right? And it said, vote for Arneson, the shape of things to come. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not running away from it, everyone. This is, this is what you get. New Hampshire had never had a female governor. Arnie was a male name. And I didn't want people to think that I was hiding behind this generic name. And so we decided that the subtle way of telling people, but at the same time not running away from my sex, was to have signs that say, Arnie, just call her governor. Big campaigns are expensive. Candidates have to report who's donating this money and also what they're spending it on. There are different campaign finance laws in every state. In New Hampshire, a candidate can basically accept as much money as is thrown at them before announcing the run for office. 
Once officially announced, though, there's tight regulations. There are campaign donation limits in New Hampshire, but realistically, most of these candidates are running pretty small campaigns with just enough money maybe to get some signs. State senators, it's going to get more expensive. You are talking about a few hundred thousand dollars for candidates. That's a, a lot of money for a lot of people. It's not as much as you're going to see in terms of the millions for the gubernatorial races. Other than paying staffers, what is campaign money spent on? A chunk of it goes to swag. Campaign photos, yard signs, bumper stickers. When you're in a rural northern town, um, they'll put your bumper stickers on their tractors. I prefer a bumper sticker on a tractor than a Maserati. During her primary, she got more votes than any other Democrat in the state's history. Like encyclopedia salespersons of old, some candidates still go door to door and attempt to sway voters face to face. How are, How are you? you doing? I'm out again canvassing for November election. If you want to put a sign in our yard, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes, I will have yard signs available next week and I will distribute them. Both candidates say the support for their campaigns has been great throughout the election cycle. Next, it's live simulcast coverage of a debate among the three candidates vying to be governor of New Hampshire. The candidates are State Representative Deborah Arneson, Republican Steve Merrill, and former State Attorney. Just to have a governor who understands that the, to grow out of the economic doldrums is the way American capitalism works. Representative Arneson, one minute to respond. I'm not sure we heard an answer from Mr. Merrill. I didn't hear him suggest that we would lower the highest property tax rates in the nation. In fact, today we have... And that concludes this live debate of the gubernatorial candidates in the state of New Hampshire. We thank our candidates. We thank our panelists. There's a series of ads going on. Let's hear one of them. Ultra-liberal. Somebody check my pulse. Arnie Arneson. Just listen to her. Okay, you get my drift. And you'll know why you just can't afford to vote for her. Paid for by Bass Victory 96 Committee. Um, I probably ended up getting divorced years later, in part because that was the beginning of the end, because it was too rough on the family. Financially, it was devastating, because not only was it the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, but I could bring in no income. We had extra expenses because Mommy was never home. Um, my children rarely saw me. My former husband had to drive them down just so they could connect with their mother because the population base is in the southern tier and I lived in northern New Hampshire. I was on the road or doing a radio show from 5 o'clock in the morning till 9.30 at night. Um, I, I had amazing staff who never slept because none of us had time to. Not every campaign is so labor-intensive. There's a lot of other points in this process where you, people might just kind of appear on the ballot is what it looks like. You can also run a write-in campaign. And if you get enough people writing in your name on the primary ballot, you'll appear on the general election ballot. Bada bing, bada boom, good to go. Mm -hmm. Also, if a party does not have enough candidates to fill all the seats available, they can end up more or less appointing someone from the party to just run as a candidate. Polls have just closed in six states, and in a minute we'll project the winners and the losers in those states. It's going to be an exciting evening, no doubt. Finally, the big day arrives. Will all this build blood, sweat, tears, and hand sanitizer pay off? With polls closed in 39 states and the District of Columbia... Democrats the fourth Republican to win a governorship was Steve Merrill in New Hampshire. 
He received 56% of the vote. In she lost the election. Other than losing, <laughs> I have no regrets. None. Um, everyone around me inspired me. Everyone around me trusted me. You know, it was, it was magical. Thank you, Arnie Arneson, for a great Democratic speech. Since then, Arnie ran two more races and has become a fixture in New Hampshire politics. Washington Journal continues. Our guest, Arnie Arneson, she is based in Concord, WNHN Radio, syndicated radio talk show host, a friend of this network. We check in with her often, especially this time of year leading up to presidential politics. And we always but what happens if there's a tie? And this actually happens more than you would think in these state representative races, because we're already talking about races that are divided by just a handful of votes a lot of times. So what happens is if they do a recount and it's still the exact same vote, they put dice in a bottle and they just throw the dice. And that's how they determine who wins the race if there's a tie. Wow. Yeah. Does it specify what kind of bottle it has to be? There's like a historic bottle, I think, in the Secretary of State's office that they that they traditionally use. But it's not like written into state law that they have to use the magic bottle. It's like the sorting hat. Like the sorting hat, exactly. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Thanks. We're going into the woods for our next story. Daniela Ali introduces us to the New Hampshire Department of Forests and Lands. If you're living in New Hampshire, you've seen a tree. In fact, 84% of New Hampshire is covered by forest. So currently the adelgids are laying eggs. The eggs will eventually hatch and turn into little tiny crawlers, which will then crawl up the branch, find a new spot, and then they nestle in and they have a sucking, a piercing sucking mouth part. And they basically pierce right into the twig and suck out all the nutrients. But sometimes when you work in an office most of the day, like we do here at New Hampshire Public Radio, you forget about all that nature around you. And that there are some things you might need to run from, like some bees. But there are people who don't run away from bees or piercing, sucking mouth crawler bugs. Those are the folks who are also managing New Hampshire's forest land, from listing rare plants to managing wildfires to fighting off pests and invasive species. All of them are working for the Division of Forests and Lands. This is Civics 101 New Hampshire. I'm Daniela Alley. Today, we take a look at how the Division of Forests and Lands works across the state through protection, planting, and education, and how the forest is a part of New Hampshire's political landscape. say, well, you know, the forest, you know, they just kind of grow, you know, if you don't mow your lawn for a couple of years, it grows into, you know, trees. So, you know, why is there a state agency that's responsible? This is Brad Simpkins. He's been the director for the division for 11 years. Um, you sprinkle 1.3 million people within that forest, and then you have all the visitors that come up. And really, that's what we do is we manage the forest in the context of being used by people through recreation and timber products and all those things. The Division of Forests and Lands is made up of five bureaus, and they have three main responsibilities, protection, planting, and education. The division's been around for about 110 years. And when it got its start in the early 20th century, the hubbub around conservation was growing. Americans were starting to think about nature as a place for recreation. 
Teddy Roosevelt established the national park system, and people were out and about, enjoying the woods. For a while in New Hampshire, nature's purpose was more about economics than beauty. By the 1860s, most of the state was clear-cut for farmland or for the timber industry. So the green and brushy mountains we see today just look bald in historical photos. And in the early 20th century, New Hampshire was also experiencing a lot of wildfires, in part because of railroads. That's what folks used to transport all the timber. And people were cutting a specific part of the tree, the nice part, the stem. And they left behind all the brush in the woods. These old, you know, locomotives would go through spitting out sparks. Um, and then on dry days, they'd ignite that brush and you'd have huge fires in the White Mountains. And so fire protection was another big reason that the state agency was created because uh, forest protection was such a big issue. The Forest Commission had whole reports of all the places that experienced fires. These, these booklets go through, they have all the charts, you know, here's the different fires by month. Um, a lot of them go into, uh, to, you know, damage us. There's a picture. Like As a way to spot these fires, the commission set up fire towers on some of the highest elevation mountains outside of the Whites. And in 1911, Congress passed a law that helped New Hampshire fight these fires, the Weeks Act. It provided federal money to states to patrol forest fires. And Little New Hampshire was the first state to get that funding. It helped that the senator who proposed the act grew up in Lancaster. Today, the division still maintains the towers, and while they aren't used to spot fires anymore, fighting fires is still a major component of the agency's work. Risk of brush fires remains high across much of the state. Crews will be back in Milton this morning. On Sunday afternoon, they were back once again as the fire nears its third week of burning. Only two acres burned, but this brush fire in Alexandria has been a challenge. The Forest Protection Bureau trains firefighters in every town each spring to fight wildfires. And this year has been a pretty wet spring compared to two or three years ago, so there haven't been as many fires as normal. In an average year, we have a couple hundred wildfires. But there's a little wrinkle that makes the division's work a little more complicated. Nearly three quarters of New Hampshire's forest land is privately owned. That means the division isn't necessarily regulating that land. Instead, they're there to offer advice and guidance if those landowners have questions. Why so much land is privately owned starts with New England's colonial history, after land was stolen from Native Americans. And so land was sold up, it was divided, chunked up, and sold uh, to private individuals long before the West was ever even, you know, settled. And here's how land ownership usually went back then. The British gave colonists charters and grants to the rich folks, who could then sell it to other people. But a lot of the time, people just staked a claim to land by building a farm a defense. But that is not how things played out in America's takeover of lands west of the Mississippi. There, the federal government owns nearly half the land in 11 western states, according to a 2017 report by the Congressional Research Service. Today, though, the feds do own some land in New Hampshire, the White Mountain National Forest, which is about 750,000 acres. Meanwhile, the state of New Hampshire, through state parks and other properties, owns about 10% of the forest. 
And while the division is managing its publicly owned lands, it's also a resource for all those private landowners. So say a landowner has a question, they might reach out to someone like Jen Weimer. Most people don't know they have a problem until their tree is dead, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so usually by the time I get the call, it's too late. But occasionally, you know, we can help folks out. Um, if a tree can be treated, if it's an insect that, that can be treated, um, then, you know, we'll give them advice, advice on how to treat it themselves or who to contact. Jen's a forest health specialist, often taking care of another element in forests that can spread very quickly, pests. And she's involved in one of the division's major roles, protecting the state's forests, publicly or privately owned, from disease. That is probably over the last 10 to 15 years has really, uh, it's become one of the busiest programs within um, our division because it just seems like every few years there's a new invasive insect or disease that comes into the state and attacks our trees. Maybe you've heard or seen the emerald ash borer. It's a, well, emerald-colored, six-legged insect devastating ash trees in more than half the country. Uh, which, you know, there's really no cure for. One other exotic invasive species is the hemlock woolly adelgid. It's a wingless insect originally from East Asia and was first spotted in New Hampshire in 2001. Jen pointed it out to me on our walk in a town forest in Rye. There's a little bit right here. You see this little tiny white fluffy ball? Yeah. <laughs> so that um, is the adelgid. The insect itself is really tiny. It's that black spot that you see in the fluffy white ball really tiny. This is Jen again. She's been in this line of work for the past 15 years. So the forest health program uh, monitors the condition of the state's forests. Um, it's important to have healthy forests so that we have good habitats for wildlife. Um, you know the timber industry is very strong in New Hampshire so we need to grow we need to grow timber. Um, so it's important to keep our trees healthy. Um, it's also important for recreational opportunities and a lot of people want to live in New Hampshire because it's forested. They want, you know, they want trees in their backyard. Today, Jen's walking the trails in that town forest, checking up on the trees. Uh, what I see is a lot of very sick trees. These trees were first infested in 2008. And a few years after it was detected, Jen released a beetle that is a predator of the woolly adalgid in the hopes that these critters would mitigate the problem. And so what I'm doing today is I'm trying to go and see if I can find the beetles. <laughs> um, and so we haven't had a lot of luck yet finding them. Um, and so I'll be taking some branches back to the lab and looking a little bit closer to see if I can find some of the larvae that, have, um, that, are, that are on those needles and, and hopes that you know there's possibly a future here for hemlock. Right now it's not looking so good, um, but there's always hope. Jen's one of three people that works full-time in forest health, so she spends a lot of time driving around the state, setting up insect traps and surveying the forests. The Bureau also does an annual aerial survey, flying over the state looking for damage. And once that data has been processed, Jen's on the ground, trying to find the potentially damaged areas her team saw from the sky. You know, what's going on? Why are the trees dying? Why are they defoliated? This is probably the most depressing part of my job is when the trees are losing their battle against these pests. It is, it is really sad. Um, you know, I came in here in 2008, and although the insect was in here, the trees were still really, really healthy. This was a beautiful hemlock forest, um, and I've 
basically been watching it die for the last 11 years. And When she's not staring death in the face, Jen gets calls from private landowners around New Hampshire about what's happening with trees on their property. If you have a sick tree and you don't know why, um, you can call the division and and we will come out and look at your tree. There's no cost for that service. Um, It's important to us that we know what's going on in people's backyards so that we can know what's going on in the forest. Another focus of the agency is planting. Back in its infancy, as the agency figured out how to manage forest fires, it also faced this other dilemma, how to make the bald, barren, logged hillsides green once again. So in the 1900s, the division decided New Hampshire needed more trees. So they set up a state nursery, which is now in Boscoan, to help replant New Hampshire. So. Um White pine's really, really well suited to growing in New Hampshire. It's, it's the most common species you see in our landscape. Um, red pine, because it grows well on really, really dry sites, but it also, at the time, you know, back in that time, it was, it was the number one species for producing telephone poles. Um, and then white ash, most likely because, you know, things like tool hand, back then, tool handles. That's Sean Brestahan. When I talked with him, he was the nursery director, but now he's retired. Nowadays, the nursery sells about 50 different kinds of seedlings. These are the little baby trees, typically two or three years old. And all of these plants are native to New Hampshire. It's the only state nursery left in New England. You know, because we're gathering all of our seed here in New Hampshire, you know, the trees that we're getting from are already used to our environment. They've, they have already survived the worst of what New Hampshire can, can throw at it. So it, you know, gets back to Darwin, you know, fittest, survival of the fittest. Anybody in New Hampshire and in other states can buy these seedlings. You can request a catalog and pre-order from that, or just show up at the nursery and see what you can get. The nursery wraps up its selling season in early spring. The typical planting season for trees runs through Memorial Day. After that, Sean says, the soil is too dry for the roots to really take hold. Even though the state doesn't own a lot of forest land, there's one bureau within the division that oversees land acquisitions and the expansion of state forests and parks. My name is Tracy Bover. I work for the New Hampshire Division of Forests and Lands, and I'm the administrator for the Land Management Bureau. Conservation is a primary reason the state tries to acquire more land. Uh, it really helps to um, provide um, Less, you know, provides for opportunities for less habitat fragmentation, protects large open blocks of land. One of the main ways the state can conserve land is through conservation easements. A conservation easement means land is still held by a private citizen, but the state has the development rights to the property. They can't necessarily subdivide the property or build houses or that sort of thing. Some easements still allow for timber harvesting or agriculture. And right now, this bureau alone holds a total of 60 easements. And with most easements held by the state, local residents can take walks or strolls through that property. Education is another key component of what this division does. And while some of that outreach falls in the Division of Forests and Lands, a lot of the work is actually done through the University of New Hampshire's Cooperative Extension offices. Statutorily, it's our responsibility, uh, but we don't have all the staff for it. This is Brad Simpkins again. 
Each county has a cooperative extension office, and it provides information and informal education for free to residents. The Division of Forests and Lands has an agreement with UNH that these offices and their county foresters will do a lot of the outreach and advising to private landowners. A chunk of property, but the vast majority of our lands are privately owned. And so work, if we want to have a healthy forest, a productive forest, those types of things, it's imperative that we work with those private forest landowners. These county foresters can help landowners and curious citizens learn more about steps to take to keep forests healthy or to spot problems, like those invasive species we mentioned earlier. Or maybe they might help folks find rare plants on their property. There are about 411 plant species that are considered threatened or endangered at the state level. One of my favorite plant species that is really interesting is uh, Robin's syncofoil, Potentilla robinsiana, a species that occurs only in the alpine zone of Mount Washington and Franconia Ridge. And they're the only known locations for that plant in the entire world. You're expecting, I don't know, like a huge plant, and then it's, oh, it's adorable little plant with some really cute, you know, orange-yellow blossom flowers and everything. This is Sabrina Stanwood, the administrator of the Natural Heritage Bureau. This bureau exists because of a 1987 law passed, the Native Plant Protection Act. That's RSA 217A. Because there are no laws protecting any of our native plants, every year hundreds of our native plants are dug up and removed without permission from public and private property. Many of these are taken out of state and sold for profit. Therefore, the legislature finds and declares that... Essentially, we maintain a database of those rare species and we use that database to um, make recommendations for conservation, conservation and management um, to protect those New Hampshire's native plants and natural communities. So if a landowner wanted to know if there were any rare plants on their property, they could submit a request, and the Natural Heritage Bureau would send along a map and list of plant and animal species that had been found on that property. The department also monitors the environmental impact of building projects and provides recommendations for management. So also we work, we meet with the Department of Transportation on a monthly basis and, and review and provide recommendations on, on their projects. There's a lighter side to the job too, like when people send in their pictures of plants to the state botanist, Bill Nichols. He's basically the state's plant detective. We definitely receive a lot of pictures of pink lady slippers, which we respond and say those are not rare. But there's a different species, the yellow lady slippers, that are rare. It's part historian, part detective, you know, part explorer. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, it can be really fun. <laughs> In some instances, the forest may seem apolitical, but in fact, it's the landscape of state politics here. In the legislative session, Brad says he's been following close to 50 different bills that would affect the work of the division in one way or another. You know, our travel and tourism industry, well, you know, that's huge in, in New Hampshire, uh, but the, kind of the backdrop of why they're coming here is our forests. You know, they're, they're going out to hike and recreate and snowmobile and ATV and ski and camp and do all these wonderful things. Our forests provide the background for all those things. There's also renewable energy and biomass, the timber industry, property taxes, and issues of land use. How to balance conservation with housing needs, for example. And you have people who, we have some people say, 
why, why are you cutting trees on public property? You know, they want them all set aside as preserves or wilderness areas. And then we have other people saying, well, geez, couldn't you, couldn't you cut more and support the economy more, you know, more trees, more jobs and mills and all those things. I like to say we're managing our public lands for the objectives of 1.3 million landowners and trying to find what is that right balance uh, between all the different uses is probably one of the most difficult parts of the job. But there are forces beyond the state house that the division has to take into account, like climate change. Climate change is one of those things where it kind of has an impact on everything, Um, whether it's, you know, maybe how you're managing um, in the forest, what type of trees you're trying to get back, or what type of wildlife you're you're managing for, um, to uh, the sizing of the culverts you put in your road, because now it seems like we have... um, some extreme rain events. So, you know, we have to kind of upsize everything so we're not blowing out roads and infrastructure. That's Brad Simpkins again. Jen, the forest health specialist, worries what kind of other invasive species the state might see with warmer temperatures. Sean, the state nursery manager, is wondering how weather patterns will continue to change. They're on a two-year planting schedule. And Brad's focused on the long game. The division's planting trees across state forests, and some species take up to 100 years to be fully grown. So when you make a decision, you know, that's that's a long time. Um, it's not like, well, we made the wrong decision, we'll just redo it in two years. So that's why we have to be cognizant of this, because these forests that we're managing right now today in 2019 will be dealing with some of those changes in 100 years from now. And how, so what we do today will dictate what that stand may look like 100 years from now. After all, trees don't just grow. It's not like you just don't mow your lawn and there they are. That's it for Word of Mouth this week. This week's show was produced by Jackie Helbert, Ben Henry, Daniela Ali, and me, Erica Janik. Civics 101 is brought to you in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.